And our gospel reading today is taken from the gospel of Matthew, reading chapter 25, verses 1 to 13. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and they trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will be not enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. This is the word of the Lord. And let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your holy word this day. We acknowledge that it is your word, and we pray that the living, active, and probing voice of God would search deep within now, grant us eyes to see, and grant us ears to hear. And with Samuel, your prophet, we say, Speak, Lord, your servant listens. And now, God, may the words of my mouth and may the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, for we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, today I have three short observations for you on the parable that's uh, in front of us. And I want you to notice, first of all, as we look at Matthew 25, the, the tone and the mood and how that changes across Jesus' parables. Not long ago, we looked at the, the parable of the prodigal son. And uh, in this story, it's charged with the teller's admiration for his father's mercy. It's charged with the Lord's tender awareness of his father's love. And it produces in us as a, as a mood, a marked sense of comfort and peace and, and joy and relief as we, as we see that image of the father embracing his prodigal son. But the parable of the ten virgins is very much unlike the parable of the prodigal son. Here the attitude of the story isn't comfort, but it's caution. It's not a warm story, not at all, but it's a story of warning, uh, if not threat. It arouses in us very disagreeable feelings. Uh, and if the prodigal son is in a, a story of embrace and caress from the father, then the parable of the ten virgins is a prod, and it's a shake uh, to the church. The story is meant to leave us with a certain chill, but in doing so, it's also meant to stir in us a longing to be real, 
to be real and not false, to be committed, to be faithful, to be spiritual, to be indeed living followers of the Lord Jesus. People who want the Lord immeasurably above and beyond all that they can ask for from the creature. People who are saying, I have set the Lord always before me. And I'm not surprised at all that the Puritans, these great uh, ancestors of ours who I've come to love, some of the most authentic Christians that I've ever uh, come to know, I'm not surprised that they treasured this difficult text deep in their hearts. If you ever happen to read a fellow by the name of Thomas Shepard, Thomas Shepard was one of Jonathan Edwards' uh, favorite authors. If you ever happen to read Shepard on the Ten Virgins, it will undoubtedly change your life forever. Alexander White, one of my favorite Presbyterian authors who read Shepard as much as Spurgeon read Bunyan, wrote that once Shepard gets on your track, he will follow you hard all of your days. Once he gets a real hold of you with this parable of the ten virgins, you will never be able long to shake him off again. And though Shepard was undoubtedly a great man, this is not so much a credit to him as it is to the parable. All of us today need this parable to seize us until it shapes us into a true gospel people. So two things I want to look at now. I've I've talked about the mood of this parable. I want to offer two suggestions or observations uh, surrounding this text. And I want you to notice, first of all, that the parable is about the nature of the visible kingdom of Christ. The parable is about the nature of the visible kingdom of Christ. The kingdom of heaven, Jesus says in verse 1, is like ten virgins. Now, what Jesus doesn't mean here is the invisible kingdom of glory. This is not, right, shepherd, the kingdom of glory in the third heaven, for there shall be no foolish virgins there at all. Rather, this is the external kingdom of Christ in this world. This is the visible church in which kingdom some are wise and some are foolish. You see, the invisible church is the gathering of God's elect, God's chosen in Christ. This is the real body of believers. These are men and women and children who have been born again by the Spirit of God. They are united to Christ by an act of grace. And once joined to Jesus, they are never cut off. Christ's body has no amputations. Christ's body loses no limbs, no hands, no feet. Christ's body, as we read in the New Testament, is always and only being built up. I will build my church, says Jesus, and the gates of hell will not in any fashion prevail against it. And so here at Christ Church, you will hear us preach the doctrines of eternal security. You will hear us boast in the truth that there is no falling away from Jesus. You will hear us teach warmly that grace is not some sickly plant that can die. It can never die. Once grace takes root in your heart, it is there for good. Jesus saves. Jesus saves, we read, and Jesus saves not partially, but Jesus saves to the uttermost. What he does, he does perfectly in us. And you'll notice today that Jesus' parable today, in that parable, the wise stay wise. 
There is no wise virgin in our parable that lapses into folly. The wise stay wise, we read. But the visible church, the visible expression of God's kingdom on earth is composed of the wise, and it's also composed of the foolish. It's composed of the elect, and it's composed of those who merely act the part. They profess the faith, but there's no subsurface reality in their hearts. There's no authenticity there, even though they're part of this greater gathering. And as the parable goes, as we read today, every one of these virgins is looking for Jesus. They're all on the path. They all seem to be about the same thing. They're all in the church. They're all there. All of these virgins are going out to meet the bridegroom. And at the end of the parable, some of them say with a great shock and surprise, Lord, Lord, why is this door closed? Are you not the Lord? Are we not following after you? And in the visible church of the 21st century, you have many people with the name of Jesus on their tongues. There are many people who look to be followers of Jesus. They confess, they hear, they sing, they pray, they serve. But some of them, some of them are foolish and some of them are wise. Some of them are authentic and some of them are not. And even though there's no litmus test to discern the difference, Jesus wants us today to have some understanding of the difference between the two so that we can make sure today that we are on the right side. Thirdly, so what is the difference between the two? The fundamental difference between the foolish and the wise as we read today is that the wise are ready. We read this in verse 10. This is the word that the Lord uses. Those who, look at your text before you, those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast. And Jesus repeats this idea in verse 13 with the word watch. Watch, that is be ready, always looking to the goal of your journey. Now speaking of folly, there be many in uh, the church with foolish flights of fancy. In interpreting this parable in the form of allegorical designation, this oil here stands for this. This lamp stands for that. Jesus means this by trimming the lamp. Surely these dealers are gospel preachers and so forth and so forth. I mean, it's all nonsense. Jesus taught parables. He, he didn't teach allegories. And the important thing that we get here is the point of the story. And the point of the story is that those who are wise are in earnest about their journey. Those who are wise are those who are in earnest about the journey ahead of them. They embark upon this journey prepared. They know what it's going to take and they supply themselves with the means to see the journey through. They are resolved. They are determined. And this is not some free will, voluntaristic, pull up your bootstraps theology, the little train that could, if you're just determined enough to get to heaven, then you can do it. That's not what Jesus is saying here. It does mean, however, 
that when true grace lays hold of a person's soul, it will always, always manifest itself in a certain dedication to the goal. The truly gracious person looks to supply herself with everything necessary to get to the goal, which is Jesus. True Christianity, gracious Christianity, is a life of gracious readiness and gracious endeavor. So I want you to consider with me what J.C. Ryle, the great Anglican bishop of Liverpool, has to say about this. And he writes this in his book, Holiness. Ryle writes this, he says, I look at the world and I see the greater part of it lying in wickedness. I look at professing Christians and I see the vast majority having nothing of Christianity but the name. They know nothing of spiritual strife. They know nothing of exertion and conflict and self-denial and watching and praying and warring. They know literally nothing at all. True Christianity, he says, is a fight. The true Christian is not meant to live a life of religious ease and security. There are no promises in the Lord Jesus to the seven churches except to those who overcome. Grace, he writes, is a conflict. And the saddest symptom of those so many called Christians is the utter absence of anything like a fight in their Christianity. True Christianity, we read today, gracious Christianity manifests itself in earnest readiness and endeavor. Christianity, we read from Paul, is a good what? It is a good fight. And can you imagine a boxer in the ring? The bell goes off, and the boxer just kind of waddles out in the middle with a sense of great ease. The boxer throws everything that he has into the contest. And so it must be, the Lord says, with the life of grace. Listen to what Paul says and how he phrases this in Philippians 3. Brothers, he says, I do not consider that I've made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Forgetting, he says, what is unimportant, and by implication remembering what is most important, straining, pressing on, he says. Remembering, forgetting, straining, pressing on. That is the goal of the godly men and women. I do everything I can, she says, to ensure that I will gain Jesus Christ. I do everything I can do to ensure that I will gain Jesus Christ. I have set the Lord always before me. This is my life. This is what I do. I set the Lord always before me. And everything that I can do, I do to make sure I get my goal. But you see, the foolish aren't so persuaded. The foolish don't care in this way. For them, Christianity and church are important, but they say everything in moderation. And so as Ryle says, these people aren't seized with the sense of the importance to watch, 
to wrestle, to war, and to win the ultimate prize. And so they set out as visible members of the kingdom, but the zeal for their father's house has not consumed them. They set out on this journey, but the zeal for their father's house has not consumed them. And when the Lord comes, his word to them is very, very simple. I don't know you. He doesn't say, I knew you once, but I know you no longer. He says, I don't know you. You were never mine. You were never a child of grace. And to these who persist in their folly to the end, the doors of salvation will be shut forever. And so it's utmost importance today that as we open our hearts to the Lord that we ask ourselves, do I watch? Do I war? Do I wrestle? Do I seek to win? Is my life consumed with earnest readiness? Do I do everything so that I may win the prize? In short, does my Christianity cost me anything at all? Is it even a cross? And so I want to pray together today as we, as we let these words soak in our hearts. I simply want to close today by praying that God would grant to each of us today a gracious heart that wrestles, that wars, and that wins the ultimate prize. So would you please bow with me and let's pray to God together. You can pray quietly in your hearts with me as we pray, Dear God and Father of Jesus Christ, I desire to be ready for the kingdom. I want to want Jesus more than anything else in this life. Grant to me true repentance and true faith so that I might wrestle and war and win, so that I may belong to the eternal kingdom of Jesus Christ so that the doors of heaven may be opened to me at last. For I pray that this grace would come to me in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.